Well, this morning, I want to share with you one of my kids' least favorite words, and that word is soon. And I feel like I'm always telling them when they're asking me different questions, when they want to know how much longer until we get there, I always say soon. Well, how much longer until school lets out? Soon. How much longer until Christmas? Soon. And they have come to really despise that word. And maybe it's because we as a family love to watch rocket launches or something, but my kids love a good countdown. Like, they love to anticipate. They love to count down any and everything, things that don't even make sense, or they just try to time them. Like, when we are at a red light, they, I can hear them in the back seat, five, four, three, two, one, trying to time it correctly, or when the food's going to be ready, when they're waiting for our food to be done, they just say, five, four, three, two, one, just anticipating, waiting, or for the car to move, or all these things, or when they're waiting for dad to come out of the bathroom, I can hear them out there, five, four, three, two, one. So they love, love, love to count down, anticipate, and I think it's because they're always asking me, like, how much longer? They have a need to know, right? They want to know how many seconds, how many more minutes or hours or days until that thing I'm waiting on finally gets here. And I think it's so funny because even if I did tell them, hey, two weeks, one month, they just do not have the correct concept of time, right? They're just so little. They don't, anything beyond tomorrow is just forever for them. And so in our house, one of the things that has just come about is in the Castillo house, our family, we measure time in Bluey episodes. <laughs> so this is Bluey. It's a kid's show that we absolutely love. It's incredible. My wife and I probably love more than our kids. Uh, more, we love to watch it more than our kids do. Uh, but we measure. They're like eight minutes. So we always tell our kids, that's like two Blueys from now. That's like five Blueys from now. So they just don't have the correct concept of time. And so this morning, the reason I tell you that about my kids is because I want, I, I, and I believe that there are many of us who are followers of Jesus who are very similar to my kids, but just in a very different regard. And so this morning as a church, I, I want us to talk about something that we are told and we know is important and something that we know is going to happen soon, and yet our lives don't always reflect that that's true. And so this morning, I want us to look at some of Jesus' final words. And so if you have a Bible this morning, turn with me to the end of your Bible. Not the maps or the index, but the last, word, the last words and page of Scripture. The final book of the Bible we refer to as the book of Revelation. And it was a vision that, Jesus, that God gave the Apostle John. And in it, he gets glimpses of what is to come and what is going to happen at the end of all things. And in it, he encounters Jesus who speaks to him throughout it. And at the very end of your Bible and God's revelation to us in his word, Jesus has some final words for us. And I want to read them together this morning as a church. Revelation 22, verse 7. This is Jesus speaking. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. Verse 12, look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And then the very final words of your Bible. Verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. 
the final thing Jesus wanted us to know was not only that he was going to come again, but that he was going to come soon. So if that is true and we are to believe his words, it doesn't always feel that way, though, does it? That Jesus is going to come soon. And so I want you to be completely honest with yourself this morning. How do you feel and what is your response when you think about Jesus' return? Are you nervous? Are you excited? Are you unsure? Are you indifferent? Do you feel unprepared? Do you even think about it at all? You know, this week as I, I was looking at this and studying this and, and being reminded of how often am I thinking about Jesus' return, it stood in such, such stark contrast to everything else around me happening this Christmas season. I mean, you think about it. If you just go outside and drive around, you see that so much of our world is celebrating and pointing towards Jesus' first arrival, that first Christmas. The lights, the songs, the tradition, the decorations, the advent, the candles, the gifts, calendars that are counting down to that day that we celebrate Jesus' first arrival. And as I was doing this and, and studying this and looking around me, I just realized how infrequently I think about the second Christmas when Jesus comes again. That in the midst of all of it, I am realizing I am not thinking about it in the same way I think to the first one. And this is interesting. There are no instructions or commands or reminders for us in the New Testament that tell us that we should celebrate Christmas. Now, don't get me wrong. I am not a Grinch. I love Christmas. My lights were up November 1st, okay? I have some crazy inflatables in my front yard. I love the Christmas season, and I think it is a good thing that we celebrate it. But there are no instructions or commands or reminders for us to celebrate it. And yet, there is plenty of instruction, and there are plenty of reminders for how we should anticipate the second Christmas when he comes again. Now, I know it can be hard, right? Like, I get it. Honestly, how do you wait and live in anticipation of something that you don't know when it's going to happen? Like, how do you wait when you don't have a countdown, when there's no day on a calendar that you are looking to? It feels like, man, I got my ticket punched to this event. I just don't know when it's going to happen. And I think it leads many of us to just lose sight of this urgency and this anticipation. And I think because we don't know the day or the time, we end up living like it's going to be far from now. Not just tomorrow or a week from now, but many of us feel and believe like, oh, this is generations from now. This is probably lifetimes from now. Really, really far from today. But is that really the case? Some of the biggest questions we have in regards to this are this. What's taking Jesus so long? And what are we to do until then? Look at what the Apostle Peter wrote to us about this. It's a good question. What's taking Jesus so long? Look at what he said. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. 
the Apostle Peter's reminding us, listen, you feel like God is being slow. We do not understand slowness or time like he does. A thousand years are like a day, and a day is like a thousand years to him. So not only is this day going to come, come suddenly, but God's timetable is different than ours. You see, God is outside of time. He created time which makes the first Christmas such an incredible miracle that God would step back into his own creation and live and walk amongst us. And so what may seem like a long time to us is not to him. And I want you to notice not only that God understands time differently than us, but I also want you to see his reasoning for waiting. What is taking Jesus so long? We are told there. It says that he is patient with us, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. That in the end, people will be judged according to what they have done, Jesus said. But it's not going to be who did more good than bad. It's going to be who trusted in Jesus and his life and those who did it. That is why he waits. And this is telling us that every single day, that he delays, there are more people coming to find life and hope and forgiveness in him. That people's eternities are changing around you every single day. And that is why he delays. And that is why he waits. So the question to ask yourself is this. Does this truth affect my life? Does it affect any part of your life? <clears throat> Do you live with urgency? Have you ever wondered, like, why are you still here? You ever think about that? Like, when, if you're a follower of Jesus, when you step over the line of faith and you trust in him, you are justified in that moment. God makes you right with him, and you receive Jesus' gift and his life attributed to you. You are made right with God. But you ever wondered why in that moment you didn't just teleport to heaven to be with him? Like, why are you still here walking this earth? That's why. That's why. He delays and he waits because he's wanting more people to come to him. And so he's patient. And this tells us that we as followers of Jesus are meant to be people with our eyes on the horizon, waiting and anticipating his return and understanding that he delays because he wants more people to come to him. And imagine if we did that. Like imagine if we lived our lives in that way and we lived with that type of urgency and we lived with that in our, our minds and in our hearts. How would it affect our life? Well, it would give you urgency. If you believe that Jesus was coming back today or any day now, you would be moved to urgency to reach the people around you. You would love them and serve them. You would unashamedly share about the hope that you have found in Jesus, wanting them to find it as well. This is what Jesus is calling his people to do, to live like this. And if we live like he might return any day now, it would also give you new perspective. This perspective, when you read the New Testament and you, you, you see the lives of these early followers of Jesus, they believed that he was coming in their lifetime. And it affected every part of their life. They lived with this expectation that he was coming in their life and it was central just think about it. If you believe Jesus was coming any day now, how big are the problems that you worried about this week when you hold them up to that coming day? If you believe Jesus was coming any day now, today or tomorrow or sometime soon, 
What about the things that stole your peace this week? How big are they in comparison to that coming day? The things that cause you to be worried or anxious, the things that cause you to compare yourself or feel less than or inadequate, how big are they suddenly when you live in light of his coming return? Everything changes. And we are meant to live our lives every day with our eyes on that coming promise that he will return again. So this morning, I want to lead us to do something as a church. One of two of the ordinances that Jesus left us is he commanded us to baptize people, and he also instructed us to the, observe the Lord's Supper. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he had dinner with his disciples and his closest friends. And it was the Passover meal, and it was a meal that they observed every single year at the same time of the year. It was tradition from the time they were born. And the Passover meal was all about the past. It was all about what God had done in the past for their ancestors, how he freed their ancestors from slavery in Egypt and took them into freedom in the desert. And it was all about remembering what he had done. And yet on that night, Jesus took these symbols that they had done their entire life. It was familiar and yet, in the moment when he got to the point where he was going to talk about this and say what he, they had heard all of their life, Jesus said something new. And he gave something they knew so well and become so familiar and probably mundane, and he gave it new purpose and new meaning and new significance. And he said, this is not about what God has done in the past. And this is not about your ancestors. This is now about you about what God is doing today and what is about to happen in my life. And he broke the bread and he said, listen, this is what I'm about to do. I have come for this very reason, to give my life for you on your behalf and for my blood to be spilled on your behalf. And this was the gift he gave us. And here's what's interesting, that the Apostle Paul, when he wrote the instructions for how we should take the Lord's Supper, here's what he said. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We are meant to celebrate the Lord's Supper as followers of Jesus, to remember his death and his sacrifice, but to keep our eyes on that he is coming again. That we're meant to be moved to gratitude and thanksgiving for what he's done, but our hearts are also meant to move to the coming day. Lord Jesus, come again. We cannot wait for that day. So I want us to celebrate the Lord's Supper together this morning. And our Lord's Supper team, you can go ahead and head to your, your spots. But as we celebrate it too, immediately afterwards, we're gonna sing, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And it is a, maybe for many of you, a familiar Christmas song. And it's all about thanking and celebrating and crying back out to God, thank you so much, Jesus, for coming to us on that first Christmas. And as we take the Lord's Supper and as we sing maybe a familiar song, I want us to do it and be moved to thanksgiving and thankfulness and gratitude, but then to allow, allow our hearts to begin to think and to anticipate that he is coming again. And as we sing that song and thank and praise God for coming, Jesus for coming, that we would also thank him that he's coming again. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread. He gave thanks and he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Eat this and do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way he took the cup. He gave thanks and he said, this blood is the new covenant in my blood. Drink this and do this in remembrance of me. For as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. If you are a follower of Jesus this morning, I invite you to partake of this with us. Take your time, reflect, and take it as you, as however you feel led, and then stand with us and let's sing this song in response. to 
Amen. You can take a seat. Well, naturally, as we look to Jesus' return, we have to naturally wonder, what's he going to do? Like, what is it going to be like? If I'm going to anticipate and look forward to this event, then what is going to happen on that day? And we know that Jesus will return again, and we also know that his second arrival, that second Christmas, will be very different than the first. The first time Jesus came, it was incredibly clear that Jesus came as a humble and lowly and meek king, that he was born, he stepped into creation as a baby, humble himself completely, that he was born, when he was born, he was born in a manger with no fanfare. And even in one of his biggest moments in his ministry, when he walks into the holy city of Jerusalem and crowds are waiting for him, he comes into this big moment on a donkey. He is a humble, lowly, and meek king, and he still is. And yet when he comes again, it will be very different. Revelation 19 describes him as a warrior on a white horse that he has a sword with him and that his eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head he is wearing a crown. His second arrival is very different. And we also know that he's coming with a different purpose. Look at what the writer of Hebrews wrote. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. It tells us that the first time Jesus came, he came to bear our sins. But when he comes again, he's coming to rescue and to restore. Look at one of the visions that John received from God that is in the book of Revelation. And it's a vision of the restoration that Jesus is coming to bring. And just picture this in your mind, this incredible moment. Look at what it says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And to the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. And those who are victorious will inherit all of this. And I will be their God and they will be my children. We see here that John paints a picture of Jesus' arrival and what he's coming to do. The restoration that he brings to everything. That Jesus is coming to bring restoration to our bodies that he's coming to bring restoration to earth and creation itself, that he's coming to restore our relationships and peace itself is restored. So we see the creation is restored, and here's what I want you to see. I want you to see that this book that we refer to as the Bible, these 66 letters and documents and books that we bound together and we call God's word the Bible, I want you to see that it's telling one story. 
It's telling one story. And it's the story of God and his people. And after God makes us, we rebel and we break what he has made. And then it then becomes about Jesus coming to fix what we have broken. Coming to rescue and to restore his people. And I want you to see that the final few chapters of your Bible are bringing about a completion to the things that started in the first few chapters of your Bible. We see in the beginning that heaven and earth are created, and here at the end, we see that God is making a new heaven and a new earth. We see that in the beginning, the curse is announced, and here the curse is no more. We see that death enters history, and at the end, death is no more. That people are driven from paradise, and now they are restored to paradise. That sorrow and pain and suffering come into the store, and here they are removed. That in the beginning, we see that there is separation from God, and here at the end of this story, we see that we are reunited with him. Now, this is not in my notes, and this is definitely not in my Bible, but I imagine, too, that at the end, there will also be no mosquitoes. I think they're a product of the fall, uh, but that's just, that's not in here. (laughs) But we see that many of the things that are not present in the first few, two chapters of the Bible, these, the pain, the suffering, the separation, those things are also not present in the final two. They disappear as well. And one of the things we see is our bodies are restored. The Apostle Paul wrote that in this present world, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, that we await the day when our bodies, we receive new bodies that are glorified. They are not broken like the ones we currently have. In case you weren't wondering, this is really clear. This is not my glorified body, right? You would probably say the same. It breaks. It is not well. There is something wrong or awry with it. And let me tell you, those are going to be the best before and after pictures you've ever seen in your life when we receive our glorified bodies. When those who have died return with Jesus and those who are still living, we will have new bodies, glorified ones, that no longer break, that no longer are affected by disease, that no longer are affected by the effects of bodily and mental illness, that do not break or or feel the effects of stress or worry or anxiety, God will restore our bodies. We see that relationships are also restored. I want you to see one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. This is Micah chapter 4, verse 6. Look at what it says. He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. What a beautiful and powerful picture of Jesus coming to restore our relationships with one another. If you just think about it, for all of human history, we have fought with one another. We have warred with one another. And as our technology progresses and we become just greater civilizations, we just have better weapons to fight with one another. And yet here at the end, when Jesus comes to restore, we see that they will turn their spears and their swords, and I imagine our guns, into tools to tend the earth. They are no longer needed. 
that the world becomes united in this moment under Jesus and in his kingdom and nations are no more. That Jesus' kingdom is built. And it describes that there are people from every nation, from every tongue, from every walk of life who are united in his name, in his kingdom. And we also see that peace itself is restored. That we are brought back to God's original plan and back to the peace of the garden and a final end to the effects of sin. There are no more tears or crying or grief or sadness. One of the most painful things we experience in this life is when someone near us dies, when we lose someone. It's painful. Jesus himself cried when his friend Lazarus died. There is pain and sorrow associated with it. But I want you to see that we're given new perspective and God restores peace. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. I love Adrian Rogers wrote this, Death is only a comma to a Christian, not a period. It is a powerful reminder that when we lose someone who is a follower of Jesus, there is a comma at the end of that moment because that is not the end of their story. That if we are followers of Jesus, we have hope that goes beyond this life. And we do not grieve as those who have no hope. It's why every funeral of someone who is a follower of Jesus should end with hope. Yes, we grieve. Yes, we mourn. Yes, it hurts. Yes, it doesn't make sense at times. But we are meant to find hope at the end of it as we remember that this is not the end. And ultimately, what I want you to see this morning is that everything points to this moment. Everything. All of your Bible points to this moment. All of human history is working towards and building towards that coming day when Jesus comes back. That is the culmination of all of our history is leading towards that glorious day. And you ever think about it too, marriage itself is pointing to this. God gave us marriage. And in the New Testament, we're given instructions that we are to give each other as bride and groom and that the bride represents the church and God's people, and he represents the groom, that it's all working towards and building towards, and we give each other in marriage as a symbol and to be reminded of that coming day when we, his people, are reunited with him, our king. Everything is pointing to this day. So ask yourself, are you living with your eyes on that day? I want you to. I want you to live your eyes on that day, and I want it to give you different perspective about the things that you're currently walking through, the things that are hard today. I want, you to, I want it to give urgency to the people around you and give you urgency for the people around you. I want it to give you hope in the midst of what may feel hopeless. And I want to remind you that this is not the end. This life that you're in, What's right in front of you is not the end. Your circumstances are not the end. The mountain that you feel like you're trying to climb or the valley that you find yourself in today is not the end of your story. This life can be filled with hurt and heartache and pain and sorrow and chaos, but there is more to life than what's right around us. 
There is more to life than what's right in front of us and what we directly see. That perspective changes us. Just think about it. It has always changed the lives of those who are following Jesus. What, caused, what would cause people who are walking with Jesus to leave everything behind them to follow this guy? What would lead the early church leaders to give their lives in cause of spreading this good news to the ends of the earth? What would cause people who have followed Jesus for all of that time to do things that the world around it deems to be foolish? To live generously, to serve sacrificially, to strive for and to achieve things that the world thinks are dumb or foolish and to not strive and seek to achieve the things that the world tells us that we should. What would lead people to forgive those who have wronged them? What would cause people to have hope in the midst of the most hopeless situations? It is that we all hold on to this truth that Jesus is coming again. And that this is not the end. And they let that truth affect every part of their life. And so this morning, I just want to remind us, this is not the end. And wherever you are in your story today and this morning is not the end. And if you're a follower of him, you have hope beyond what's right in front of you and what's happening to you. And if you're not, I want to help you to find that hope. This morning, if you recognize I'm not a follower of Jesus, I've never stepped over the line of faith or trusted in him or his life, I want to invite you in just a moment as, as we sing a song, I just want you to cry out to God. Pray and say, God, I need you. Would you come into my life? God, forgive me for what I've done. And I'll be here underneath the screen during the song and afterwards, and I would love to connect with you and to walk with you and to pray with you to help you understand what it means to follow him. But for the rest of us, Jesus wants our eyes to be fixed on the horizon, to live our lives in light of that coming day and to allow it to affect every part of our life, that we would live expecting his return. And so in the next few moments, and as we sing this next song, it's all about that coming day. And so would you just reflect on wherever you feel like you have been? Maybe you haven't thought about it. Maybe you're indifferent. Maybe you're afraid. But in these next few moments, would you just begin to pray and say, Jesus, help me to fix my eyes on that day. Help me to have the right perspective. Help me to live with urgency. And God, would I celebrate and anticipate and await your coming return? Let me pray. God, thank you for coming to rescue. And God, thank you that you are coming again to restore. Lord, we love you and help us to keep our eyes on the horizon and that we would celebrate and that we would pray for your return. Lord, we love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.